Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. Like many of us, Dr. Dale is an opportunist. You come across someone that's interesting with interesting stories to tell, you stop and you want to ask. Well, that's this month's podcast, and I think you'll very much enjoy the conversation Dr. Dale has with a special guest. Let's go on location to southwestern Oklahoma with Dr. Dale. Good morning, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you all again this month. Uh, I'm uh, on location up in southwestern Oklahoma right now, uh, east of Lawton, Oklahoma, about 50 miles. Uh, One of the services that the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation offers is private consulting. And uh, I'm the consultant that makes the on-site visits. And I tell people that I've got such a great job because as you travel and you meet new situations, meet new people, you, you always run into some interesting characters. And so this uh, interview that I'm doing today is with a guy that I met that uh, is working on this ranch up near uh, Marlowe, Oklahoma, and impressed me. Uh, you'll, you'll learn pretty quick that he doesn't talk like a Texan. And so uh, I wanted to sit down. I just asked him, I said, would you mind uh, visiting with us for about 30 minutes for our podcast? And normally when I interview somebody, I've given them a week to study a list of talking points. I didn't have time to do that. And so as a, in the matter of opportunity, I told him, I said, we're going to do this one off the cuff. We'll see how it works. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. My guest today is Penn DeVries. And Penn is, uh, like I said, you're going to learn pretty quick. He, he, doesn't te- he doesn't talk Okie and he doesn't talk Texan. So, Penn, welcome to the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. And if you will, just give our listeners uh, a 30 to 45 second a background of where you're coming to us from. Well, thank you, Dale. I appreciate you having me on. And um, we really appreciate you coming out here and visiting with us. Um, I'm a third generation Zimbabwean. I was... Uh, born in a place called Salisbury, Rhodesia, which back in 1980 became Zimbabwe. But I grew up on a 30,000-acre game farm. My formative years were spent mostly on that ranch. Um, um, I, uh, I went to school in a little town called Bulawayo, but I spent most of my time out on the ranch in, in Zimbabwe. So my family is all from there, and um, that's where I grew up. Well, now I've got to make a tie between you and your experiences and your skills mm-hmm. between Zimbabwe and bobwhite quail here in southwestern Oklahoma. So I'm going to constantly be trying mm-hmm. to look for ways to weave our discussion into mm-hmm. uh, what your training is. And but you didn't study bobwhite quail, mm-hmm. but I, being able to weave that into our odyssey that we've defined now for the ranch here that we're on today. So uh, I understand you were a professional hunter. I was a, a PH. Prof- That's right. I was a professional hunter and guiding. I did some guiding too, photographic guiding, but professional hunting was was really uh, where I started off with my my career in wildlife management. But it, it, really, where it all started was with my dad, who was a very well known um, uh, uh, wildlife rancher in Zimbabwe. He he did some incredible work. Uh, he was actually a pioneer in wildlife. Um, 
uh, ranching, uh, going from cattle ranch to to wildlife, you know, was a big step back in in the early 70s. A lot of people were dead against any sort of wildlife, um, but he decided it was best for the land and 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 best, I guess, made more economic sense to him at the end of the day. Um, it, but that's who my mentor was, and that's how I grew up on this. 30,000 acre game ranch with all this uh, I mean I remember game captures, translocations, elephant captures, uh, I mean we did just about anything and any kind of animal species that we had in Zimbabwe that we translocated but it was um, from there on I went on to to become a professional hunter uh, later on in my life once I'd finished an apprenticeship in, in mechanics of all things but I went back to the to the ranch and and worked with my dad and my family for 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 you know uh, probably close to twenty five years on the ranch. So, um, well, it sounds like from what you were telling me yesterday that mm -hmm. uh, you don't just walk in and decide you want to become a PH. So it's pretty rigorous training and apprenticeship and background education. So, give us an idea of some of the things that that you were required to master before you were yeah. accredited a, a, a professional hunter. So basically, before you even started, you had to be affiliated with someone who was in wildlife ranching. So, I mean, you couldn't just be an accountant in in the city of Bulawayo and decide you want to become a professional hunter. You had to have some sort of background or be working on a wildlife ranch, um, not a cattle ranch. I mean, that's completely different. So a wildlife ranch is where you had to be. You had to be uh, 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 affiliated to someone I of course grew up on the wildlife ranch so for me I had a, a slight advantage over a lot of people who wanted to get into it but um, it started off with a with a written test um, there was there was four different things there was habits and habitats of all your wildlife whether it was your birds your lizards your uh, your mammals uh, um, fish it, it covered the whole spectrum of wildlife in Zimbabwe and specific, you know, to certain areas. But the test was habits and habitats. Uh, you had fauna and flora, uh, um, knowing your trees, your grasses, your forbs, your your wild fruits. Uh, then you went on to, to firearm uh, uh, rules and regulations that you, they really wanted you to know your firearms and your rules and, and regulations that, that concerned the hunting industry. And then you went on to national parks law. So national parks law was part of the curriculum that you had to study and you had to sit down for a test. And so you had to get at least an 85% score to be able to pass the written test. Now, once you've done that, uh, you could then go and work with a professional hunter. Now, whether in my case, it was my dad who was a, a registered professional hunter. And I worked under him for f over four years before I could actually go and do a field test. And so that in the field test itself was basically pretty rigorous. You had to go out and set up a camp and you had to take the time to show the instructors and the people that were examining you, the examiners who were seasoned professional hunters who had at least 10 years under their belt um, who were examining you and you had to treat them as they were your clients. And so you would spend a week out in some remote place in Zimbabwe, uh, wildlife area, mostly it was provided by the government, it was either a national park or a game reserve that we used. But in this area, you had to show your skills of tracking, you had to show your skills of being able to identify plants, uh, you had to identify uh, uh, sound, bird sounds, you had to identify grasses. Uh, I mean, it, it, 
it was pretty intense. But not only that, you had to be able to sit down in the camp at night and talk shop with your clients. So if your clients ask you, well, can you, what do you think is the best, you know, uh, uh, caliber to use on a buffalo? And what's the legal limit on a buffalo? And of course, you know, you'd have to kind of talk about ballistics and uh, ballistic coefficients and, and uh, you know, uh, powder ratings i mean it it it's it's very very comprehensive and the zimbabwe professional hunters and guides associations in actual fact in all of africa is they to this day still a lot of the old professional hunters that rated some of the best guides in africa i mean we we were sought after in, in many parts of africa as guides and i went to tanzania because of that and spent 12 years there guiding for a company because I had a experience from Zimbabwe. So those are my, that was my education. I'm not a, I never went to college or got a degree, in, uh, but I understood the, the, the natural world very well. I grew up in it and it was part of my life. So yeah. Well, that, you know, I would call you a naturalist yeah. as opposed to a biologist. Mm-hmm. And those of us here in the States, mm-hmm. uh, I'm in my mid-60s now, and I had the good fortune of, be, being a wild, mm. becoming a wildlife professional, when big the the abilities of a mm. naturalist were still something that was very desirable. Mm-hmm. Over the years, our fresh students coming out of a university they really have no training in being a naturalist. They don't know how to read the landscape, whether it be the tracks or the mm-hmm. birds singing or whatever that much. And I think we've lost something as a profession mm-hmm. by the fact that yes, we, they can. They can use modeling and they can use GPS and mm-hmm. the various technologies and so forth. But one of those core skills is just the ability to to read the landscape. Mm-hmm. And I was impressed with that as, as we visited yesterday. And that's that has significance to us again as we're talking about our quail odyssey now mm-hmm. on this ranch. Because some of the homework I've given you mm-hmm. is basically going to ask you to uh, do inventories of plants and birds and, mm-hmm. and the ability to incorporate a lot of the training that you had yeah. and the, the love that you had as, right. a, as a naturalist and, and being able to apply mm-hmm. that as we move forward uh, on this property kind of thing. I'm sure you, I, I've, you've told me some very interesting stories over the last uh, 12 hours and uh, mm-hmm. it, we, we could spend 12 hours on this podcast to going through those. Yeah. As a kid growing up in southwestern Oklahoma, I mean, our... Our um, days were spent either carrying a BB gun mm-hmm. or um, a lot of times we were always trying to catch some animal, this one or that one, and raise it. And might, in my case, it might have been a prairie yeah. dog or a ground squirrel. <laughs> we uh, absconded with some great horned owls one time and tried to raise those. Uh, but you've got some really interesting stories, you know, where I'm talking about prairie dogs and and uh, horny toads, where you're talking about lion cubs and leopards mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, we don't have 20 minutes, so no. tell us a, tell us one of your favorite stories about your childhood and some of the critters you dealt with. So, d- due to the fact that my dad had this very um, close affinity to wildlife and, and people around that area knew him really well as the, the guy who takes all the wildlife. And so there was a lot of orphaned animals that we often got from, from our neighboring ranches and neighboring farmers, and they were saying to us that... Um, we uh, we've got this lion cub, or we got a leopard cub. Um, would you like to take it in? I mean, of course, we ended up at one point with nine lions in our backyard. <laughs> now, I remember bottle feeding lion cubs at home with my dad, and it's like, 
okay, well, you take that cup and I'll take this cup and get a, get a bottle of milk out there and we'll mix it all up and we'll be bottle feeding these lion cubs. And these three lions specifically I remember as a child. And that was Ch uh, Chaka, Simba, and the other one, I believe his name was Zulu. There were three male lions. And basically they lived in the house. I mean, they slept on our beds at night. Uh, as they grew older, my mom absolutely hated them because they tore up the furniture constantly. I mean, my dad was in constant trouble over these lions, but but they became part of the family. Um, but but at, at one point they got so big that we had to kind of shift them outside and we had a big enclosure for them. It was <laughs> over an acre big, but we kept them in the backyard. But the one thing I do remember, and, and I always have a, a very... Um, strong childhood memory over this that at the time we were going through a war a bush war on you know a lot of the ranches were being attacked and the only time that I really stepped well as a kid growing up during this time was when the lions were roaring and the reason for that is is because if I was an insurgent running out in the woods right wanting to attack someone I'd think twice about going to someone who had three big grown male lions in his backyard so for me, that was a kind of a comforting thing to hear. And to this day, and, and all the years I spent in the African bush, if I hear a lion calling at night, it's almost like listening to to my favorite country song, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that that just, it just soothes me, comforts me, it makes me feel safe. And it's the weird thing. It's just a childhood memory that you have of a certain sound. Um, and I guess you would have the same thing. You hear something out here or in we Texas. We hear the coyotes howling or yeah. whatever. Yeah, the coyote howling or they have, you know, you have connection to it somehow in your childhood. And that, that was interesting. But there was always a menagerie of animals on that, on, that, on that ranch. So we had an elephant too, a baby elephant that we actually had. Um, he used to come and stand at the breakfast table in our house. <laughs> Thank, much to the disgust of my mother, she was always fighting with my dad over this. But Jumbo used to come into the house, stand at my dad's side next to him, and he would feed him, you know, corn or, or whatever you could piece of bread on the table. And the elephant would be there with his trunk, but he was a little baby elephant. He'd been orphaned. And he grew up to be an adult elephant, but we used to take him on game drives on the back of our Land Rover on the property. He used to climb up on the back of the Land Rover <laughs> and we'd drive around the ranch with him. We'd get to a, a tank or a water hole, let him out and he'd take a swim. And sure enough, he'd come very, very intelligent animals. But that was another interesting, you know, uh, memory of, of and, so, and, and really interesting childhood that we had in Zimbabwe. And, and those things are just not, you know, it, they're priceless. You can't, it just doesn't happen anymore you know right. it's it's uh and, and that's where my love for wildlife came about too through growing up in that in that environment you know so in some respects you remind me of a of a local legend that we have out in mm -hmm. the west texas area a, a fellow named barefoot bob and i'm going to interview barefoot bob uh, mm -hmm. at some point in time in the future because uh, again uh, for pretty similar niche, mm -hmm. although uh, much yeah. tamer mm -hmm. relative to uh, Zimbabwe, but uh, just the just the experiences that y'all have had, and and the again the naturalist ability to relate what you did, and uh, how that love for that basically developed into what you are today, kind of yeah. thing. Um, let's talk about something that mm -hmm. I've, I've never been to Africa. And I can't really say I have any interest in going over on a big game safari, but I know y'all have game birds over there too, and that's yeah. something that most of us don't think about when they talk about people going on a safari. They're talking about 
Cape Buffalo and lions and leopards mm-hmm. and the big five kind of thing. But, uh, and I interviewed a man several months ago named Paul Melton and uh, shout mm-hmm. out to Paul because uh, Paul is one of the guys that I know goes to Africa occasionally mm-hmm. and his primary interest is in game birds. Yeah. So uh, tell us about what some of the game bird opportunities are there in, in Zimbabwe. Well, there used to be quite a lot of uh, opportunities to hunt game birds. I mean, it's kind of diminished now with, with the situation happening in Zimbabwe, but um, there were places where you could go and hunt uh, guinea fowl, uh, Franklin, sand grouse. Um, these were organized um, game bird hunts um, and and kind of similar, but also dove hunting was another thing. There's a lot of dove hunting too that, that you could, could do in Zimbabwe. Um, not a lot of it was over dogs, but it was um, it was just more um, a driven hunts. Um, sometimes you'd be, be doing some driven hunts. Sometimes people would use dogs. But there's some outfits out there in Zimbabwe who who would um, uh, provide you with a with a game bird experience. Now I know they do it also in South Africa. There's parts of uh, East Africa where it's also uh, conducted. But um, there is a lot of opportunities for game bird hunting, and so that was something we did kind of on a regular basis and something else that we also did we did a lot of uh, waterfowl hunting so ducks and geese and and i remember growing up as as a child too we used to go down to this um to this uh, big ag- agricultural area and and, and shoot ducks and uh, hunt ducks and geese down there um so there's a lot of game birds in africa that and the opportunities to to do some hunting you know in zimbabwe well, if I ever go over there, I want you to Absolutely. point me in the right direction <laughs> for that. Because, will, yeah. uh, I mean, there are people here in Oklahoma and Texas, mm. occasionally, you know, farmhouses that raise guineas. Yes. And they do them, I think, primarily one thing is uh, is rattlesnake protection because those guineas are going to sound off yeah, and uh-huh. kind of serve as, and they uh-huh. also serve as watchdogs, if you will. They're very raucous animals, uh-huh. uh, kind of obnoxious, if you ask me, uh-huh. but uh, effective in that situation. And, uh, Let's. Uh, I'm going to bring us back here to, to our topic today, mm-hmm. which is quail management mm-hmm. here in in southwestern Oklahoma, and we're on on the just about the eastern periphery of where we still have some bobwhite populations. Mm-hmm. And so again, over the last day, we've traveled across this 4,000 acre property, and we got up early this morning to do some whistle counts to kind of give us a presence or absence, be able to uh, kind of develop a baseline mm-hmm. of what you've got, and. Uh, our approach for this particular place is out of the 10 or so pastures on this ranch, we've chosen two of those mm-hmm. where either you have heard quail, you've been up here about a year, I think, something like no, that. No, I've actually only been here for two months. Okay, and, but, <laughs> so, but you've heard some quail. Yeah, in, I've heard in, some in, quail in the last two months. Yeah, absolutely. In one area, and then we went to another area mm-hmm. that, again, the habitat just reeked that there ought to be Bob mm-hmm. White's here and we stopped mm-hmm. and listened and picked mm-hmm. up two or three mm-hmm. yesterday afternoon. So we're going to take those two areas and uh, through the management plan that we would we'll, yeah. we'll be implementing, hopefully be able to document that we took that ember of a quail population mm-hmm. and grew it mm-hmm. over the next five years. And so we've, we've got a plan laid out and you've got some homework assignments and you mm-hmm. seem eager to do those. And for yeah. someone in my position, it's it's always refreshing to be with somebody that's interested in not only the fact that I want to see a quail, but the equation that it takes to bring that on. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the plants, that's, that's right. the associate, habitat associations and so forth. Some of the tools that we mm-hmm. used and Joe will be using here uh, and include such things as your prescribed burning program. And I was glad to hear that here in this in Stevens County, 
but there apparently is still a, a, a pretty decent local burn culture That's uh, right. here in this area, which is not yeah. always the case. Mm -mm. No. They do uh, they do a lot of burning here, and I think it's it's very important for the landscape. I mean, burning's been a traditional part of, you know, uh, America, um, even you know way back. Uh, it's it's there's nothing nothing new, and I know in Africa we also did a lot of prescribed burning. Um, it is very good for the landscape. It's very good for the habitat, um, and it uh, you know it's it's a it's a management tool that should be used more often. And I think a lot of people don't use it enough. And it has changed the landscape probably for the worse, I think, um, in my opinion. I mean, but um, we used to use burning as, uh, as a tool in Africa all the time. But. So, Penn, it sounds like there are some interesting similar analogies between the southern Great Plains of the U.S. and, and where you were raised in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. As far as, uh, as, far as the, the culture of, uh, again, prescribed burning and mm -hmm. the utility of some of the tools, and the utility of grazing. And one of the things that I pointed here, y'all are in about a 38-inch rainfall zone here. Mm -hmm. And coming from a 20-inch rainfall zone out around Snyder and San Angelo, you get over here and you say, my gosh, look at mm -hmm. all the grass. And mm -hmm. I know that um, a cow guy has got to look at it and say, I found heaven kind of thing over here. It was refreshing to me to visit with the owner and find out that part of our plan is going to include grazing. Mm -hmm. But... He's not really interested in uh, maximizing beef production kind of thing, but rather using cattle as a tool to improve wildlife habitat. And one of the one of the methods that we're going to do that here is what we call patch burn grazing, to where we burn small portions, small polygons out of a larger pasture with a fairly small herd of cattle, but those cattle are going to camp on those burned mm -hmm. areas, and they're going to convert right. that little mm -hmm. blue stem, take it back down to ground level, mm -hmm. That's going to bring on our sunflowers, mm -hmm. our dove weeds. Right. So uh, really, uh, it's it's a cool technology, and uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch that develop here over the next five years. And so uh, yeah, I, I applaud y'all's willingness to entertain some of these things, and I look forward to you documenting mm -hmm. and chronicling the, the, the journey from this point forward yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I've given you some homework assignments, so kind of give me an idea of, of what you've learned from our visit here over the last uh, day. Well, just to give you a, a bit of a, um, just to back up a bit. So I have an interest in quail, and that came from when I spent my eight years in Texas on the ranch down there. And only because I was asked to try and redevelop that, you know, the, develop the habitat for quail in, on the ranch that I was working at. And, I mean, I... I was kind of a bit of a greenhorn when I started with all this. This is like, you know, quail, but it really interested me because I know that quail is, the quail have become almost extinct in certain areas. I mean, the, the range is just let, are gone. And I've learned so much about, about quail just coming from Texas, but coming over here and then meeting you, Dale, and then uh, learning so much more just in the two days that we've been together here, I've learned an incredible amount of information about quail habitat. I mean, it's, um, I had some sort of idea on it because I had some some experience in it, but of course, I you can never stop learning with these sort of things. I mean, these you talk to different people, people have different opinions. Um, you know, you, you have an incredible amount of knowledge. Uh, this this is your specialty, and I, I we really respect that. And that that to me um, uh, means a whole lot because I can learn so much just you know spending time with you out here. So that that was. 
that was really interesting to go out there and look at these habitat areas, you know, and you pointing out, um, you know, the ground cover and, and, and kind of testing us on, on what we thought about, you know, in a, in a, a, um, a number of between one and ten, what we thought of the, I think we were close, I mean, but, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, did quite well, yes, you we, really did. We, uh, you know, so... So, but not only that, we went out and we, I've discovered plants that, uh, you know, I know several, but I don't know as much. You have an incredible knowledge on, on, on plants. So that was really interesting to have you out here to show me some of the stuff that, that's really good quail habitat. So I'm going to continue learning and I, um, I have quite a few things to do here. I'm looking forward to, to developing this, you know, and seeing it grow because that's something about, about this, I I have a lot of respect for people who, who who sacrifice so much for wildlife because I grew up with it with my dad. I saw what he did and what he had to go through. I have a lot of respect for Mark, who's the landowner, who's taking the big step to, you know, going away from cattle, which is kind of the the traditional thing to do. It kind of goes against the grain for a lot of people, and I just remember my dad going through the same thing. He went through hell with his neighbors because he was doing wildlife and everybody else was going, well, you know, we need cattle. So there, there's a lot to be said for people who take that big step. It's like, you're almost like you're a pioneer. I mean, even here where we are in, 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 in on the double draw ranch and, and it's, it's, it's a big step forward for the wildlife. And I think it'll be much, much better for the property in the long term, you know, so. And I want to bring up and, and reinforce the idea that mm -hmm. we're not divorcing ourselves from cattle, but no. instead of cattle no, exactly. running the show, yeah. we're looking for ways to use cattle as a tool mm -hmm. to improve quail habitat. And that's a lot easier to find that niche for the cattle when you're in a 38-inch rainfall zone than if you're in an 18-inch rainfall zone. So, that's right. so yeah. sometimes the cow-quail continuum is, is mm -hmm. contentious, and uh, it's just... It varies depending on where you're going, how, what your site productivity is, mm -hmm. and so forth. But, uh, again, the cattle will be an integral part of this over here because if not, uh, with this kind of rainfall conditions and these soils, plant succession is going to proceed so quick and it's going to get away from mm -hmm. having any bare ground and, and some of the earlier yeah. successional forbs that we like mm -hmm. to see. And it'll all go to little blue stem and some of the other grasses. And so we've got to... We've got to be able to use our cattle and our burning mm -hmm. to be able to uh, focus where we want that grazing to occur. And that's that's the beauty of the patch burn grazing concept. So uh, looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. Now, I gave you some. Uh, well, first of all, I want to compliment you again uh, as a what I call a student of quail. And you're very interested in the various plants. And you had a pretty good start. I mean, I'm, I'm quizzing you all the time. But do you know this one kind of thing? <laughs> and right. if you didn't know it, you'd whip out your iPhone. And use uh, an app called iNaturalist. Mm -hmm. So uh, just tell them, which is a very handy app. Uh, but tell us that, how you've used that and, and what you think of that app. Well, it's um, I discovered it probably several years ago when I was up. And I've always had an interest in, in, in learning about plants and trees. I have a, a, a love for trees and, and plants. For some reason, it's something that I really like doing. And even in Zimbabwe. And I remember lugging around reference books, right? And... And of course, you'd see a plant out there and you pull out your book there and you'd have to flick through 250 pages. Well, first you had to get the species first and then get the right color and make sure. And of course, you'd have these three or four books in your backpack try, trying to figure out what plant you just saw. Well, I discovered this app. And of course, as you know, there's just about an app for everything these mm -hmm. days. So 
um, someone told me about it. Said, oh, you got to try this iNaturalist app. And I did. And I can tell you what, ever since I did, I, it's even made me more interested to go out and actually discover things because, um, well, as long as you have cell phone signal, <laughs> you're okay. But of course you can take pictures of whatever you have or, uh, and then save it. And then later on, go back to the app when you do have signal or internet service, and you can actually then go back and, and discover what you've seen. And what's interesting about it is that it's really easy to use. Um, you observe the plant, you take a picture of it, it'll tell you and it'll give you a description of the plant and then gives you the option of several different uh, um, uh, species of the plant and then it will, you know, types of plants and then you've got to figure out it's not 100% accurate but it gets you close enough to where you can then do some further research but I love the app I think it's a great app and I think a lot of people should just have it on there because not only can you do plants on that same app you can do insects you can do mammals yeah you can also do birdsong you can actually download you can play the micro put the microphone on and record a bird song and it can tell you what bird it is so you start to understand what what you have around you and so the app is fantastic i would recommend people you know anybody who's interested in wildlife the iNaturalist is a is a great app now i'm sure there's a lot of different ones out there i've just used it and i've had good success with it so yeah well i've i'm not an expert with the iNaturalist but occasionally i'll find a plant and i'll say i bet iNaturalist doesn't know this one and i'll take a picture of it and i'll be dead gum it's pleasantly surprised me (laughs) that it's it's pretty comprehensive Uh in its uh database Mm -hmm. kind of Mm -hmm. thing there um, let's talk about some of the uh, homework assignments that I've given you here to, again, help us chronicle our odyssey from year zero to year two, three, five. And, and basically the owner has told us, I want to go whole hog mm-hmm. for five years to see if we can restart the quail population. Mm-hmm. Over here. We ha- Again, we we found one spot this morning. We heard three birds whistling, mm-hmm. uh, but, mm-hmm. but there's going to be a lot of zeros on this place, too, because... Uh, we just don't hear birds, and I've asked you to to draw a you know a transect of maybe yeah, ten miles. That's right. That mm-hmm. And we just genetically call this whole process the Texas Quail Index for a program we started about twenty years ago. But you're going to have that um, that route, ten mile mm-hmm. route, and at every mile you're going to have a yeah. T post in the ground for a mile marker. That's right. And then you're going to be doing whistle counts. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gonna be like we did this morning. You'll be doing uh, probably four of those here over the next month to try to yeah. document what parts of the ranch mm-hmm. have some breeding uh, corpus of birds, corpus of breeding birds out there. Right. Uh, again, we're likely to have six or seven zeros. I remind people that zeros are data, mm-hmm. and so uh, we want to be able to document that we do or don't have quail in this part of the ranch, and then hopefully we see some success at. at two mm-hmm. of these mile markers and we'd like to think that over the next five years then that those birds disperse and begin to mm-hmm. colonize some of those areas so uh, yes. what are some of the other homework assignments that i've, I've kind of led you through that that you think will be useful to you well we um we're gonna have to put some cameras up and determine what predators we have uh, at these transects uh, every mile transect that we have we're going to put a camera up and and so we can tell what predators are moving in there what we're also going to do is then put out some dummy nests dummy uh, nest. at east at each of these transects and there'll be six nests at each of the transect and we'll do these with chicken eggs and, and this will give us an indication of what level of predator we you know we have on the property um, we'll check those um, every two weeks every two weeks um, and we'll replace the eggs right. um, after that and then check them again 
the next two weeks and we'll do that for four weeks so of course there's a lot of information dale but i'm you know it's all coming together slowly and the more you talk about it of course i'm really excited about it because i know that the quail habitat is here and you've confirmed that because you know you've been out there today yesterday and today and you've you've shown us that there is a great possibility for for the quail and they are here we just need to provide them with better accommodations i guess and 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 maybe get rid of some of the enemies which is the predation um so i'm really excited about that um and those that's what we're going to start with so we get the the data baseline and then from there we'll work towards the next step and when we talk about predation everybody thinks about predator control in an active direct situation trapping and we've, we're calling for some of that but i also talked to you about how we need to make the habitat work in favor of the quail yeah. and not in favor of the nest predator. So uh, as you recall this morning we, mm -hmm. uh, when I showed you the dummy nest, and I'm always reminded of the two crash test dummies, Frank and Larry, who say you can learn a lot from a dummy. And as an educator over the mm -hmm. years, those dummy nest transects are a very powerful mm -hmm. tool mm -hmm. for helping that individual mm -hmm. appreciate yeah. the fact that uh, sitting on... 16 quail eggs for 23 days. You've got 45 yeah. days invested in a nest. And mm -hmm. what are the odds of being able mm -hmm. to pull that off? And uh, it's a daunting task in many areas. Sure. Y'all have got some very impressive nesting cover here. And I'm looking forward to seeing what your results show mm -hmm. to kind of help calibrate my idea, my model of a, of a quail. Because, again, most of my work is in the 20 to 30-inch precipitation zone. Mm -hmm. Y'all are... Uh, Y'all have the magical 10 inches more mm -hmm. above that. Mm -hmm. uh, anxious to see how all that pans out. But, again, uh, you've had um, – I'm, I'm laying a lot on you kind of thing. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that you're up to it. And, again, I know that yep. you have the interest mm -hmm. in helping uh, – you also mentioned you had a background in mechanics. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about an engine here in our old Ford pickup that's sputtering along mm -hmm. and we want to know is it the timing is it mm -hmm. the spark plugs what is it that we need to tweak and adjust to hopefully make that thing idle and perform better so a, a fairly good analogy towards your mechanical background um air and fuel makes fire say it again so air and fuel makes uh, fire that's right and that's basically if you think about it yeah that's what you need for you you need to you need to have these things for the quail that are available to them so it's sometimes it's you just have to keep it simple and 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 just think about it but it, the resources are here to to be able to do that so yeah. well and i i, I don't promise the the landowner mark I, mm -hmm. i'm not going to give him an odds that i think this is you know sure. i think we're 75 percent have a good chance i really don't know but we're going to give it our best college effort and uh to again yeah. adjust and manipulate the factors that we believe are important and yeah. then see whether or not we can document because yeah. it's easy if you don't have a way of documenting what you've done well five years from now you just say well i think we might have more quail over but we want some data to make those decisions on so again your whistle counts uh, your dummy nest figures yeah. those kind of things are going to give us the type of data that we can look back on mm -hmm. and photo points yeah. And things like yeah. that that Take will allow us to assess mm -hmm. are we, uh, if we were traveling from Oklahoma City to Amarillo, we might reference mile marker 
17 on, on I-40 mm-hmm. kind of thing. And we've got to have those types of benchmarks, if yep. you will, that will yep. allow us to say, are we making progress or are we just spinning our wheels kind of thing? That's correct. They say documentation beats conversation. <laughs> That's a good one. I like so, that. So um, it is good to document this because then you can go back and reference it. And, and yeah, and I, I just remember we used to do that a lot too in Zimbabwe. We always kept uh, records of where we saw uh, her disable and where we saw you know, uh, certain sp- species of animal or a plant or, you know, it's just always, it's a good to have that reference. So you can always go back and, and photographs is something I like doing. I like taking pictures. So it's always good to go back and say, well, this is what it looked like five years ago. This is what it looks like now. This is what we have and this is what we don't have. So yeah, it's, it's one nice. of the, one of the programs that I dealt with a lot when I worked for AgriLife Extension over the last 20 years was what we call Quail Masters, yeah. which was an intensive. Well, I could tell people it's an adult version of the Bob White Brigade, the Bob White Brigade being aimed at kids mm-hmm. 13, 17 years old. And I had so many people coming to me after their youngster went through that and saying, boy, I wish there was something like that available for adults. I said, there is. We call it Quail Masters, and it's very similar curriculum to what we teach the kids, but we slow it down for the adults. Okay. And so it's a series yeah. of four two-and-a-half-day mm-hmm. workshops scattered across the year, and we get the opportunity to go see some of the best-managed quail ranches mm-hmm. in the state of Texas, mm-hmm. which means the best-managed quail ranches anywhere. And we have a chance to see those, and so the participants are able to get into properties and uh, visit mm-hmm. with managers and so forth that they normally wouldn't have, and it's it's... It's one of my most uh, memorable aspects of my job. And the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation uh, is going to reinstitute that, hopefully beginning in 2022. And so uh, I know that once once I announce that we're going to have a quail master's class, I got a feeling you're going to be one of the first ones that I see enrolled well, be, in that. I'll be signing up straight away. Uh, can I sign up now? <laughs> we'll put you down on the waiting yeah, list. Yeah, put me down on the waiting list. Yeah. But you're exactly the kind Absolutely. of student that I enjoy mm-hmm. working with because, again, number one, you're hungry for yeah. the type of information and uh, the, yeah. the network, not only between you and I and the landowner, but uh, the network of other students of quail sure. is, is a tremendous asset. And mm-hmm. I, I told the landowner yesterday, I said, if, as we get this quail master's class going, I'll probably be wanting to bring them up here because, again, it's, it's a beautiful piece of property. Mm-hmm. And it's right on the periphery of where we yeah. think we could probably still have an impact on quail. That's right. So uh, looking forward to the Odyssey. An Odyssey is an, an intellectual journey and mm-hmm. often interrupted by sudden twists and fates and that kind of thing. So I think it's an appropriate term for what we're embarking on Mm -hmm. here. But again, uh, I really appreciate your time today, Penn. And uh, again, as we had the opportunity, I know we could have uh, uh, Dr. Dale and Penn uh, African uh, adventure (laughs) kind of a podcast. uh, And I know our uh, listeners uh, will be interested in catching up with you some point in time. So I wish you the best on this. And certainly, as I can be of assistance in this, I'm always anxious to help other students as well. Well, thank you, Dale. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you coming out here. And I've learned a lot and certainly have a lot of respect for, for what you do and, and for people who, who take the time and the sacrifice to do this. Because it's one thing I do know is that it's it's people like us that are kind of rewilding, you know, America, so to speak, but not only America, but there's so many places out there that that need this kind of thing. And I think a lot of it, like we said right in the beginning, people have have lost, you know, that ability to be a naturalist and to be out there to to see the things 
well they say to see the see the wood for the trees i guess i mean it's it it is it's out there and i think more and more more people should get out there to, to see it for what it is because it is a, certainly a thing of beauty is to to try and and if you haven't got a, a a wild place to try and make it wild you know any way you can because it's it's really quite fascinating and it's going to be an interesting journey definitely and i i certainly look forward to it and working with you in the future i think it was henry thoreau mm -hmm. who said mm -hmm. in wildness is the salvation of the world and so the ability yeah. to be mm -hmm. out in the outdoor classroom like we've done uh, the last day or so is is certainly one of yeah. the things that i like yeah. most about my uh, career mm -hmm. and again finding people interesting people like yourself so uh, appreciate you taking time yeah. uh, to elaborate on that again if you're interested in some private consulting contact me d rollins at quailresearch.org and we'll work out a situation uh, to spend some time with you on your ranch and develop a management plan that's specific for bob white quail or our scale quail uh, in here in uh, texas Gary, with that, I'm going to turn it back to you in the studio, and we appreciate our listeners and look forward to visiting with you next month. Signing off. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. What a great program. Very interesting guest and very interesting experiences for sure. If you'd like more information on past episodes of the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. We look forward to our next visit at our next podcast. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.